on the same page. So praise the Lord. Looking forward to that day. Will you join me in Matthew chapter 8? And as you're turning over there, uh, can I too make a quick announcement about this? Uh, I think you'll see this also because some folks are not here this week. This will probably be in your bulletin again next week. And that's uh, an explanation, a little bit of what Annie Armstrong, and that you may say, what is Annie Armstrong offering? If you have grown up in a Southern Baptist church, you've heard that for years and years. If you're not familiar with that term, hopefully this will bring you up to speed. Uh, just a quick question. If we were, right now, just to pause and close our eyes for a moment, not going to do it, but if we were to close our eyes for a moment and say, would you raise your hand? Again, if we were to do this, would you raise your hand if you'd be willing just to pack up and head out to St. Paul or Minneapolis, Minnesota and go spread the gospel there? Could you raise your hand? Is there? Yeah, I'll do that. Would you raise your hand? Um, maybe you'd say, I'm re I'll go to Los Angeles or Seattle or Vancouver. Uh, I'll go various places, and, and maybe you would do that. And some of you may say, I don't know that I would, like, honestly be able to raise my hand. And then we always have this to fall back. I don't know that the Lord's called me to Minneapolis or Seattle or Vancouver. Okay. Do you know we've got four or 5,000 who are ready to go? Would you support them? Can we support them over the next few? You say, well, I don't know that I'm ready, and I don't know that the Lord's will is for me to go. Over the next four or five weeks leading up to Easter, we're already collecting. Some actually gave before we even started promoting it, and that's awesome. Um, but over the next few weeks, we want to be raising an offering, and this is to North American missions, and there are plenty of need. Uh, all you have to do is go out, even in Anderson with all of our churches, and start asking folks about their soul, and you'll realize there's need here, but there's other pockets uh, in North America where the need is even greater. So uh, be in prayer about what the Lord would have you to do as far as supporting that offering over the next few weeks. Matthew chapter 8. Uh, today is our second message in a new section that if you were here last week, you've noticed we hit a new tone last week. It is less preaching these precepts and discourses and teaching and preaching of Jesus, and then it it's going to turn more narrative, and we're going to find selective areas of doctrine that is put in there. And this one has plenty of doctrine in it, but it's, it's not just unfiltered, full-throttle, all-doctrine. There's a story that we need to discuss. And so again this morning, I'm going to be weaving in, particularly at the front end, a lot of, a little bit of background on, on what is happening here. And so if you will... Join me in Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 5 through 13. So we're focusing on nine verses this morning. And then we'll get into the message. Matthew chapter 8 verse 5. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum. This is the city on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. That Jesus in essence used as a headquarters. A base for his two and a half years of ministry up there. When he had it, so the Sermon on the Mount's over, he's come down from that. There was a crowd of people, and I don't know that that large crowd is still at this particular scene. No doubt some, though, are still following, and they'll keep, keep track of his ministry. Verse 5 again. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. A centurion appealing to him. Here's the appeal. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. My servant 
is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. That's the appeal. That's it. Much like the leper who doesn't come right out and ask for a healing, the leper last week just says, I know you can heal me if you want to. If it is your will, I know you can. Jesus says, I will, and he heals him. Here, this man just lets Jesus know that he has a servant at home who is paralyzed and suffering terribly. Verse 7, and he said to him, so Jesus says to him, I will come and help him. I will come and help him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Change of plans. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word. That's his request. Only just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Here's his reasoning. For I, too, am a man under authority. Notice he's linking himself here with Jesus. I, too, am a man under authority. Like you, I'm a man under authority. I'm a man who bears the weight of authority. I'm the man who's under authority as well. So he, read verse 9 again. Why, does he, why is he saying Jesus doesn't need to come to his house? Just say the word. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. He's a centurion. Again, he explains, I say to one, I catch this, I say, I just say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, maybe it's in the written form of a note, maybe it's verbal, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. There's two times, I believe, in the Gospels, the Bible says Jesus marvels. One is at this man's faith, and the other is at the Jews' lack of faith. So this time, Jesus, the human, the man, who is the God-man, is marveling at what he's hearing. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Now this, he's like getting ready to really brag on that. He turned it. Here's this conversation. He hears this. Now, did you hear this to these people? Look at verse 10 again. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Then he goes further in his revelations. I tell you, many, he uses this man's faith as an occasion to give This new piece, brand new pieces of information, verse 11. I tell you, in the idea of in addition to that, many will come from east and west. Catch it. Many will come. I've not seen faith or heard faith like this centurion, this Gentile, in all the land of Israel even. And I tell you, on top of that, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is prophesying many from the east and the west. He's saying east of Israel, west of Israel. He's talking obviously about Gentiles. I tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, 
Catch Jesus' theology. He's God. He knows. He's talking about a real place. There's a place of outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus says, Matthew closes the account, go, let it be done for you as you have asked. Is that what he says? Go, let it be done for you as you have asked. That's not what Jesus says. Catch verse 13. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. It'll be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So this is a great passage, but guys, I need to do some quick homework, all right? We've got to do this. Uh, Y'all know that we have four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all writing about the, the, the life of Christ. Each gospel writer is not going to write the exact same things. And many times they will write about the same thing, but they may have different details. That does not make one's account that may have less details or more details a contradiction of the other it's just we have to take all of it to get the full complement and the full story so they're complementing stories not contradicting stories Luke covers this same account I'm not going to turn to Luke 7 if you want to go home this afternoon or sometime during this week and read Luke chapter 7 I think it's verses 1 through 10 now here's why I'm saying this Matthew leaves some things out. Matthew has a purpose. He's inspired by the Lord. Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew's account here, they're writing about the exact same incident at Capernaum. This is a centurion, serving at home, sick and paralyzed in great pain. Matthew leaves some things out that Luke puts in. I'm going through the book of Matthew, but I want to supplement not all that Luke said, a couple of things, two or three. One, Luke says the servant was at the point of death. But the bigger things, and this is where you're going to be like, then, then this isn't right. Though this is right. Here it comes. Luke says that where Matthew, what we're reading, it looks like there's a face-to-face of Jesus face-to-face with the centurion. That's not actually what happened because Luke says that the centurion communicated with Jesus through intermediaries. So Jesus comes into Capernaum. The, the, the centurion lives there, and he sends some friends to go tell about this. And you say, well, then this is incorrect. No, if you're on the phone and you're talking to that person and you find out, well, so-and-so there, yeah. Hey, tell them or ask them, you're communicating to party number three, but you're doing it through the, well, you tell them and then you're communicating back and forth with them. You're just doing it through an intermediary. And so one of the things, so this is not incorrect, although Luke tells us that there may have never been an actual face-to-face between the centurion and Jesus. The other thing that Luke puts in there that Matthew omits is how well thought of this particular centurion is looked at by the local Jews. Strangest thing, the people that actually go to Jesus on behalf of this centurion are Jews. And if you go look at Luke this afternoon, what you'll find is they are bragging on him how worthy he is for the Lord Jesus to do this favor, this Expression of grace for him. He's a good man. In fact, he's re- this centurion's really good to our nation up here. He's the one who built our synagogue. Well, man, he must be really in, in good with the, with the Jewish nation up there. And he, perhaps he builds the synagogue, sits at the back, and maybe he's a God-fearer, but apparently he's not a Jewish proselyte yet, but he's a giver. All right, so we have this piece of information. 
And so now we have this text that I want us to look at and notice four things this morning. Number one, verses 5 through 7, would you notice with me there's an urgent plea of intercession. There's an urgent plea of intercession by the centurion. And again, I need to give some background here. There's an urgent plea. Intercession is when you're asking someone, you're asking on behalf of another person or another group of people. You're asking a favor of this person. And when that other person you're asking is God, that is prayer. In this case, it is all of that. Whether he knows it or not, this man is talking to God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's interceding for his servant and he's actually doing it through some intermediaries. And so he's asking for favors. This is an urgent plea of intercession. Now a few things Look back at verse number 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward. I don't know where you guys' mind is. You hear the word centurion, and you say, okay, I know he's a soldier. That's in the text. I can kind of gather some information from his title. That tells me something. Can I just real quick give you three or four facts about this man? Number one, because we know that the Roman armies were led by noblemen, Led by noblemen, that tells us this is an educated man. This is actually, you say, oh, those evil, cruel Romans, because we're tempted to take the perspective of the Jews and be in defense of the Jews. And the Romans have conquered all the other nations that had previously conquered Israel. Now the Romans are, are ruling over the Jews. Actually, they did, didn't come in and send occupying armies. And so this man probably is just him and his hundred soldiers under him. It's not like there's a whole legion that was there. And so I want to encourage you, don't look at this man in a bad light. This is an educated man. This is a man of honor. I think it was William Barclay, though. I was very disappointed in how Barclay wrote about verse 13. Hugely disappointed. Totally missed the mark. But he does tell us this. Had to throw that in there. But um, he does tell us this good piece of information. He says the centurions were actually the finest men in all of the Roman Empire. These are the finest of men. High, high character. Don't look at them as like they're out just brutalizing people. Their soldiers may have. But Roman centurions were supposed to keep the peace. Don't be starting fights. But if battle ensues be willing to die they were to be very loyal very very courageous we know by the word centurion you have one cent you have one one hundredth of a dollar we have a century that's a hundred years this man is a military man he has a hundred soldiers beneath him and on top of that he has other servants uh, to help him do what he needs to do in this area so again educated honorable super, this is a lot better man than I am that's what I'm trying to get across to you this is a lot better man than most of us. This is one of the really good men in all of the New Testament. Roman centurions, a centurion, again, more fact here. If, if one centurion linked up with 59 other centurions and the 100 soldiers under each of them, they would now form a legion. So if you've ever heard of the Roman legion, 6,000 strong and they could move quickly because of the Roman roads. I find this interesting, and I think I'm safe in saying this. Write this down. Surprisingly, do y'all know that the New Testament always puts centurions in a positive light? So that's how I want you to understand this. Don't look at this like a bad guy and he had a good day. Humanly speaking, this is a good man, one of the finest in all of the Roman Empire, because that's the kind of people they wanted leading their armies. New Testament. Um, like always, puts these guys. You say, like, what do you mean always? There's six or seven. I won't be able to remember them all. There is this man. There's a centurion at the cross who says, at the cross, surely this is the Son of God. In Acts chapter number 10, there's a man named Cornelius. He's the first Gentile, one of us, in the church age who puts his faith 
purely in the Lord Jesus Christ without becoming Jewish. And he is entered into the church and he receives salvation. His name was Cornelius. Later on, one of the Lord's apostles named Paul is being beaten by a mob of people. It's a centurion that rushes his soldiers down there and saves Paul's life. On another occasion, 40 men, 40 men have taken a vow that they're going to kill and assassinate the apostle Paul. And it was a centurion who snuck him out of town, transported him to another city in the middle of the night. On, a, on Paul's voyage to Rome, it was a centurion named Julius who really treated Paul well, befriended him, gave him privileges that none of the other people on board received. Paul's a prisoner, and yet this man is befriending. Constantly, these guys are put in a good light. A little more information on this man. Now, this is what we glean from the text beyond the word centurion, if you want to write this down. Though he's a man of authority, and this is a strange blend... This is a man of authority who is also very clearly, and this is, again, this is the rare blend. He is also a very compassionate man. He's a man of action because he's driven by his compassion, but he's also a man of extreme humility. Now, I want to challenge you there. I can name some that fit this category, but not many. I mean a man of great authority. This may be the second, probably the first, second, third most authoritative man in all of the city of Capernaum. We don't know a lot about the city of Capernaum, but he's, he's, the, he's one of the highest ranking men there. And yet he's very, very compassionate and he's very humble. I mean extremely humble and hopefully you saw that coming through the text. So we read in verse number 5, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Did y'all catch another strange mix? We're not told a lot of details. We don't know fully what's going on with this servant. He's not the focus of the message today. But that's strange to me. Did you catch it? He's paralyzed. So which is it? Is he in great pain or is he paralyzed? And the answer is something. Maybe it's an injury or maybe it's some kind of sickness. But the bottom line, he is, some part of him is paralyzed and another part of him is in excruciating pain. And he's actually at the point of death. Now here's... Again, back to the centurion. Why is he so rare? The day they lived, they had slavery. And you can say what you want. Don't picture our kind of slavery. This may have been a Jewish servant. This may not have been a Jewish servant. We're not told a lot of details about the servant. All we know is a servant in that day, a bond servant, was a slave. And the mentality toward a slave literally was they are a tool. They're just a tool. They just happen to be a living tool that can actually talk. Over there have some animals, and they are living tools, and they cannot talk. That one can talk. Over there is a cart, a rake, a hammer. They're all just tools. And yet this man looks at his servant with compassion and love. So much so that when he has a need, this man feels for him and takes action. This, this centurion cares more about his servant than he does his own dignity, than he does his reputation, because he puts himself on the line by going out and asking Christ in a humbling, potentially humiliating, taking a risk of being rejected, being made fun of, again, rejected. He's putting himself on the line for the sake of his servant. He cares about his servant. So there's this urgent plea of intercession. I want to give you one more thought. I've debated, do I do it or not? And it comes out of verse 7. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to to him, again, through the intermediaries, they're going to talk back and forth through intermediaries, I will come and heal him. So here's why I've debated, do I even say this? Do you all understand that this is the word of God, right? This is the word of God. 
but we don't have the original writing. So what we have are copies of copies of copies. We were talking a little bit about that in Sunday, before Sunday school back in my office. I am not a Greek expert. But there are some, and again, I'm not trying to get you to think anything less of this. I just want you to understand there is a possibility that the translators who are supposed to be experts in, in the Greek language, what they have to do is see what the, what's been written in the text, apply the rules of that language, and do their very best to translate it for us. Here, verse number 7, is a statement. Do you see it? The man comes, makes his appeal. I have this servant. He's in great need. He's dying. He's in extreme pain. He's paralyzed, just letting you know the need. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. That's a statement. Some say there is a possibility that it was not a statement. This was actually a question that Jesus responds with. If it is a question, by the way, I'm going to make a point in a moment. If it's a question, the question would sound something like this. You want me to come heal him? I have this servant. His master, he's a really good man. He's a centurion. He has a servant. He's letting you know this. What does he want me to do? What's he expecting? Me to come heal him? Or is he very simply making a statement, I will come and heal him. We know from Luke that Jesus starts making his way there. Here's my point. Whether it is an exact statement, I will come and heal him, or what does he expect? He think, I'm going to come heal him? You say, Jesus would never say that. Hang on. There's another miracle that is done for a Gentile in the Gospels, and it's a Syrophoenician lady. Again, a Canaanite and a a, a Gentile woman who's asking the Lord for healing or a raising of the dead of of her, her daughter. And the Lord's answer is, we don't take what's for the children and give it to the dogs. Who's the dogs? Gentiles. So if you're sitting there saying, Jesus would never use that kind of language. No, Jesus uses very strong language this lady. We don't give to the dogs what's meant for the children. She answers back and says, but even the dogs get the crumbs. Can I at least have some crumbs? And then the Lord gives her the, the miracle that she's asking for. So whether this is a statement, here's what I want you to get. Whether it's a statement, I will come and heal him. Or does he expect me to come and heal him? Jesus is on his way. The intermediaries make their way back to this man. They come to him, and then they say either he's on his way or he wants to know, what do you you think he's supposed to come and heal your servant for you? That brings the response that we find in verse number 8. So that's the setting. One of these two, again, we're going to go with this. Jesus hears the need, and he's on his way, and word gets there. Jesus is on his way. He's going to come heal him. That brings up the second thought this morning, an amazing declaration of faith in verses 8 and 9. Notice verse 8 and 9, an amazing declaration of faith. So there's this plea of intercession. So again, whether it be he's on his way or he's on his way, but he wants to know, do you really expect him to heal your servant? I mean, you are Gentile. But verse number 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Do you see what he does? Objection. Putting these two, Luke and Matthew, together, honestly, guys, the best I could come up with, it seems like there's an adjustment of plan because this man's faith builds as this is happening. Christ is on his way there. Jesus Christ is on his way to to his house. He's coming. He's going to heal the servant. And this man's answer is, no, don't let him come here. Well, then I thought you wanted to don't let him come here. All I need is this. And his reasoning is, I'm not worthy for him to come under my roof. 
Why is this man making this objection? I wrote this down, I think, yesterday. Catch this. His objection, no, he doesn't need to come, is based on two things. It's based on his faith that he doesn't actually need to come, and it's based on his humility. I don't deserve him to come. Just so happens, he doesn't have to come, and I don't need him to come. I know I'm throwing these, like, Two things and two things and two things. I want to give you two quick things. This man's objection tells me he understands something. He gets it. He is fully aware he's on his way. No, tell him not to come. What is he fully aware of? I'm not worthy to have him come under my roof. Reason number, not in your handout, just listen to this one. What is he aware of? He is aware that a Jew, this is the culture, you say whether it's right or wrong and we can debate, you say it's not technically in the Bible, that's in the Jewish traditional writings. The bottom line, in their culture, their mindset was if a Jew goes in the building of a Gentile that is owned, that would be their house or other buildings, if a Jew goes into the house of a Gentile or a, Jew, a Gentile building, he is now defiled. And so this man, perhaps fully aware of that, is like, no, hold on. He doesn't need, I'm not worthy to have him. He's Jewish. I know the culture. Don't let him come to my house. He would be defiled. Now, I don't think Jesus went around all the time. Oh, no, I'm going to be defiled. He reached out and touched a leper last week, and we're not supposed to do that, and he did it anyway. Jesus isn't that stressed out about defilement. But also know this. The culture would have looked at that as an act of defilement. In fact, let me throw this out. If you read the Gospels, you only find Jesus one time, only one time going into the building of a Gentile. And it's on the morning he was crucified. You remember that? You remember that building? When the Jews are talking to Pilate and they're not going in there, Jesus goes into Pilate's judgment hall again, practically speaking on the human level with no choice, He's a prisoner being put on trial. Other than that, guys, you don't find. I'm not saying Jesus was stressed out about it. I don't think Jesus was stressed out about it. But the perception is if you go into a Gentile's home, you are defiled. That's just what you're defiled. And we can say, well, I don't know that that's technical. Okay, let me say it this way. As a Christian and as a pastor elder, one of the pastor elders here at Graceview, if someone calls the office and says, can Jeff meet me? Frankly, there are some places that I cannot meet you. I don't want to list what those are. But if I say, hey, just, can you just meet me over at the so-and-so? There are some places that are defiling or they are perceived as defiling that the answer would be, no, can't we just meet at McDonald's? <laughs> I'm not meeting you over there. That's a defiling place. So this man gets this. No, he doesn't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy of that. But greater than that, what does this man understand? If you want to write this down. He's saying, I'm not spiritually worthy to have him because he perceives certain things. These, Jew, these Jews are saying of the centurion how good a man and how deserving he is according to Luke. But his attitude is, I am spiritually unworthy to have you. He's fully aware of Jesus' purity. Yes, he's a man of authority, but he recognizes true authority True authority, far greater than mine. I'm not worthy to have him come into my house. I'm not spiritual enough, pure enough to have him come to my house. And he has majesty about him. No, don't let him come to my house. I'm not worthy. I love that attitude. That's the kind of attitude that we need to take when we go to the Lord in prayer. That's the kind of attitude that gets prayers answered. So now put yourselves in the intermediary's position. What would he say? Oh, he's on his way. He's coming. He's going to heal him. No. What do you mean? No, tell him not to come. 
Then what's going on? What do you want? Tell him not to come. Then what? Just, just have him say the word. Catch this, please. Just have him say the word. What? Get him to say it. Just get him, just, just get him to say it. If he'll just say it. You say, Jeff, I'm having a hard time getting my prayers answered. I think there's a lesson in prayer from how this man communicates with the Lord. Here's, I'm, I'm going to boil down. I'm going to kind of read between the lines. And here's what I think this centurion is telling the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, you say, I, I need to know how to pray better. Here's what he says. I'm not good enough to deserve anything good from you. I'm not good enough to deserve anything good from you. But if you will have mercy, and if you will give grace, and if you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. I know he'll be healed because there is power in your words. Will you just say the word? Get him just to say the word. I don't know what you're talking about, but we're going to go give it a try. Go give it a try. Just get him to say the word. Because if I can get God saying something, now I've got him. Get him to say it. And you say, is this kind of like Rumpelstiltskin? No, it's not Rumpelstiltskin. It's getting God to make a promise. Just get him to say the word. And off they go. What's this man's thinking? Now, again, I'm going to read between the lines, and hopefully I'm interpreting this correctly. The man says in verse 9, For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one go, to another come, and to my servants do this or that. And they do it. This man, so you say, Jeff, what do you think about him? I think he has great theology. Here's his thought. I'm a man in the middle of authority. That's what he's saying. I'm a man. I catch. I too. What's that mean? Like you. Tell him that I'm like him, not in other ways. He's pure and truly authoritative and majestic. I'm not any of those things. The Jews say well of me, but I know the real me. I'm not on his level, but we are alike in this. I too am a man in the middle of authority. I am under the emperor. And he may have been under a king or a local government, and surely when 60 centurions put their hundred men together to make a legion surely someone is in charge of that and he's under but there's not many men over this man but I'm a man in the middle of authority and below me are a hundred and on top of that many other servants who do what I say so I'm a man so you say what's this man's theology guys I'm gonna propose to you here's his theology Jesus is in the middle of authority he's under someone and he's over a whole lot of other people you say, no, 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 Jesus is above every. Yes, Jesus has all power, but when we read the Bible, we know. And I think this is this, I think this is this centurion's real theology. I know he's under God, but he's, on, on, as far as earth, he's at the top of the pyramid. He's at the top of all authority. I mean, everything has to obey whatever he says to do. Even illness and sickness must obey him. Just get him to say the word. He has all authority. I know he's under God, but if God will permit him to say it, I know the disease and the sickness and the injury will leave my servant. Because he has all authority. What? This man didn't know about germs and cells and, and, and viruses and bacteria and all of that. All he knows is whatever those things are that are causing my servant to be about to die, they have to obey him, get him to say the word. Number three. 
Number three comes out of verses 10 through 12, and if you write this down, what do we find? Not just an urgent plea of intercession, and not just an amazing declaration of faith. Just get him to say the word. He really doesn't need to come to my house. And that leads to a startling moment of revelation. Startling. I flirted with what word to use there. Uh, I ended up settling on startling, but hopefully it gets across all three verses. Let's look again at verse 10, 11, and 12. And what I want to propose to you is that each verse has a stage of revelation. And each one increases in the startling nature of it. Can I propose that to you? Verse 10 has a revelation that is awkward. I'm going to use the word, that's awkward. But then it's going to increase from there, verse 11, all the way up to verse 12. Verse number 10 says the following. When Jesus heard this, these intermediaries, he says, don't come. Don't come. People piling up by Jesus. Here they come. I want to see this. Hold up. Can we help you? I'm, I'm on the way. Yeah, he says, don't come now. Why? He says, he's a man under authority like you, and that if you'll just say the word. He says, if I just say the word. Yeah, if you just say the word. He really believes his servant will be. Now that. Did y'all, did you, did you catch what these? Now that. Now that's what I'm talking about. Awkward. Because he's turning to a bunch of Jews bragging about a Gentile's faith. We don't brag about it. Even when they do something right, we don't give them credit. Kind of like sounds like our political parties around here. No, don't, don't, don't say anything good about the... Uh... And Jesus starts bragging and commending this man about his faith. It occurs to me we have these contests where if it goes through, they'll have them in Tokyo this coming sum- summer we have contests for speed who's the fastest for strength who's the strongest we've got to find out who's the most skilled who can shoot it the best kick it throw it catch it hit it or again maybe a baseball bat who's got the most skill we have other contests who's the most beautiful and everybody gives their opinion and they vote that one's got the most beauty That one has the most strength. That one has the most speed. Oh, we've got some tests. Who's the smartest? Who knows the most? Or who has the ability to learn the easiest and has the highest intelligent quotient? Let's, and we have all these things. And we have these things called bank statements. Bank statements, along with the courthouse records, tell us who has the most money. We love to compare and we love to have contests. You know where most of us fall? But yeah, I've never won one of those. I'm not the fastest, I'm not the strongest, I'm not the prettiest. I don't have the most money and I don't have the most skill. I've never been any of those. Listen, that's okay. I'm telling you in 100 years, none of those things will matter. Here's the question. Do you have the greatest asset that a human being can have? You say, what's the greatest asset a human being can have? Faith. You say, well, I'm not that fast and I'm not that strong. I'm not that smart. Do you have faith? 
The greatest asset anyone can have, I mean, I'll stand by this. The greatest thing on our end anyone can have is faith. I mean, biblical faith in God, in his son, and in his words. You say, I have that. You have the best thing in all the world. You've got what? The most beautiful, the wealthiest, the strongest, the fastest, the smartest, the most skilled. They're going to wish they have that. If they don't have it, you're going to have it. If you have that, man, you have everything if you have faith. Tell me, give me the name. Who's our great example in the Bible of faith? He's the father of faith. Who is it? Abraham. Abraham was this guy who in his heart believed, listen, it isn't even a hard thing for God to give me a son and make me a great nation. Not even a hard thing. You say, well, yeah, God gives lots of people sons. And they have kids, and they have kids, and they end up having descendants. No, here's the thing. Abraham's an old man. He's been married for decades to his wife. He's an old man when God comes along and says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. To be a great nation, don't I need some? I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. Well, here's the other problem. Sarah, sorry to be offensive, she's just an old lady. And on top of that, she's barren. She's been barren all her life. And on top of that, it's decades go by before God actually does what he says he's going Way back there, again, after decades, they've had sexual relations, no kids. And then God says, I'm going to give you a son through her, and you're going, to be a, you're going to have a great nation come out of that. And then a decade goes by, and another decade goes by, and it just doesn't look like the whole time Abraham's fine. Like, he's going to do it. Dude, you're getting older, and she's getting older, and she's better. Doesn't matter. He's going to do it. He just doesn't stress. He promised. Well, 2,000 years after Abraham, there's this man. And nobody in the land has faith like this man. Why? Why is his faith so great? Because he already believes what has never happened. He already believes what's never been done. You say, why is Jesus so commending and bragging? Why is he marveling at this? Because this man... Already believes what's never even entered into anybody else's thought. Oh, Jesus can heal. We've seen when he touches people and when he's face to face with him, he can heal. This man, like, I don't need any of that. I just need him to say the word. <laughs> Miles ahead of everybody else, he had the great. Okay, that's awkward. Jesus bragging about a Gentile. But I propose to you, verse 11 is more confusing than verse 9 to this audience. What's more confusing? Look at it. Now catch, please catch what I'm saying here. The occasion of this Gentile's faith in Jesus. You've got to get this part. You're going to miss it. This Gentile's faith is in Jesus making a promise. That's key. This man has great faith because he believes if he can catch me, again, Jesus say, if he can catch me making a promise, then he knows whatever I promise will happen, whether I'm there to physically make it happen or not. He believes if I'll just say the word. He believes if I'll promise. Jesus uses this occasion in verse 10 to now take it and make it really, really broad, and the audience is going to hear this and go, now that is even more confusing than hearing you brag on a Gentile. If verse, anything, verse 11 means anything, what Jesus is talking about is the acceptance of Gentiles. Here's his point. Jesus' point is that faith, he's using the occasion of, the, of this centurion's faith, faith in God's promise is essential to go to heaven. Here's Jesus' point. He uses his faith as a jumping off point to take the discussion this direction. 
Why? Because faith in the, I could say, the pertinent promise of God, faith in the pertinent promise of God is absolutely essential to have eternal life and go to heaven. And here's Jesus' whole point. Faith is not unique to Jews. Faith is not a unique thing, a unique asset that only Jews have. Jesus says many from east and west will come. Now, the Jews had an advantage. Catch it. Here's their advantage. They had promises in the Bible that if they would have faith like Abraham, then they would have eternal life. Jesus comes along, and the point of verse 11 is this, that even Gentiles, if they will put their faith in me, they also will have eternal life and go to heaven. So Gentiles get in on promise. More promises are coming other than the promises that were made only to Abraham. Yes, those applied to the, to the Jews. And if they would have Abraham's faith, they get eternal life. What I'm telling you is many Gentiles are going to come from the east and the west because they're given a promise if they put their faith in me, then they're going to actually recline and eat at the messianic table. Well, we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there. This is blowing their mind. The text doesn't say the response. I promise you, this, this Jewish audience is here, and it's like, you've, in your theology, Lord, you, you speak authoritatively, and you, you understand things that we don't understand. You're telling us Gentiles are going to be at the messianic banquet. Oh, many from the east and the west. But then verse 12 really astounds them. It's the most astounding, frankly, to that audience, the most absurd thing Jesus had said up to that point. Nobody spoke out. Nobody called him on it. Nobody called him down. But the idea is, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Look at verse 12. While, so this is going on, many from the east and the west will recline and eat at at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many from the east and the west, Gentiles are going to go to heaven. But the most astounding thing is verse 12. Jesus says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, this is a sad, sad verse. There will be weeping. There's a place and there, in that place there will be weeping and self-loathing and regret for eternity. And that, my friend, is like the most absurd thing this Jewish audience has ever heard in their life. You're basically saying that Jews are going to be put in the outer darkness. So where God is, is light. And then the further you get from God is darkness. But the outer darkness is the farthest place from God. Your theology is saying Jews, some Jews, many, the sons of the kingdom, they're going to be in the farthest place away from God. We're Jews. And that's Jesus' point. Not all, but what we have found is most to date, are the farthest away from God and heading that way in eternity. Verse number 12, I need to make a clarification because Jesus uses a figure of speech. Do you see it? Verse 11, many will come from the east and the west, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, Jeff, are they sons of the kingdom or not? Write this down. Verse 12 does not refer to actual sons of the kingdom. Jesus is speaking figuratively. What he's talking about here are those who, this is key, who assume they are sons of the kingdom of God on their way to heaven. They assume, why do they assume this? They assume they are the sons of the kingdom like literally out of the womb. 
What makes you think? Why, are you, why do you think you're on your way to heaven? Why do you think you'll be in the messianic kingdom of God? Because I was born a Jew. What else? That's it. So what did you do to go to heaven? I was born. I have Abraham's blood in my veins. I was born. That's all I had to do. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't expound this right now, but I want to, I want to tell you, very important. The Jews do have promises, but it comes with an understood implication. Each individual Jew must have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Each individual, they must have personal faith. It's not just that a promise to Abraham automatically gets all Jews who are ever born, just come out of the womb, automatically sons of the kingdom. No, they have to have individual faith. The book of Hebrews, some of us are reading that. Last week and this week, coming up. And if we're paying attention, what we've already noticed is... That the writer of the Hebrews is saying literally the idea. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died in the wilderness in a 40-year period. Why? Because they individually did not really believe God. They're born Jews. They come to the promised land that God has said is yours. And when it comes to that, they don't believe God. I'm telling you right now, if Abraham had been there, Abraham would have said, we're going in. That's our land. God says it's ours. Two guys... Caleb and Joshua said, let's go. God's promised. Everybody else is like, no, no, there's big giants in there. And the conditions and what we see with our eyes, it just doesn't look like it doesn't match the promise of God. Faith says, I don't care what it looks like. God's already promised. Let's go into the land. Yeah, they all died in the wilderness. Individual Jews have to, now in our day, individual Jews, and there are a few, they must put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the promises of God are centered Exactly in our day. So if I could say it this way. Do y'all remember back in Matthew 7? I'm not going to turn there. Let's, let's add a category because now we have three. Category number one. There's, according to Matthew 7, 21 to 23. There's going to be many, many people who think they think they're going to heaven. They're going to be shocked when they realize their profession of faith at some point in life, they call Jesus Lord. They said a prayer, and in the prayer, will you come into my heart and into my life? And they, they say, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord. But the, the, the evidence that they didn't really mean it was their life never changed. And they're going to be shocked. But I said he's Lord one time. You fooled yourself. Your profession was false. false. Group number two, they're going to be shocked that they also don't go to heaven because... We prophesied and we cast out demons. We did all these wonderful works. We did all these wonderful things. You were trusting your works instead of trusting Christ. They're going to be shocked. But what we have now in verse 11 and 12 is a third category of people. I'll propose to you double shocked. Why? They think they're going to heaven, but they're not. They think they're going to heaven because of who they are. What makes you say, I'm a Jew or I'm me. You know who my mom is? You know who my dad is? They have a this, and they started a ministry. My granddad's the founding, and that's why you think you're going. The double shock is when they don't go to heaven and they see other people who don't have their pedigree. How are they going in? Yeah, you didn't have individual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what Christ is teaching. So the question now this morning is, do you have the faith of the centurion? This actually becomes a theme in the New Testament. Hold your spot here. Look over at Romans. Romans 9. Literally, it's a theme throughout the New Testament is this unbelief. 
Stephen, I'm not going to have you turn there. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7 tells the Sanhedrin, he finishes his, his sermon by saying, you stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit, just like our forefathers did. Our people for hundreds of years have been killed. God sends his prophets. What do we do? We persecute them and kill them. What do you guys do? You killed the Son of God. You stiff-necked people. You're just like our ancestors. The pattern hasn't stopped with you. You go to the book of Hebrews, and what does the writer of Hebrews say? Yeah, they have unbelief. The Jews have unbelief. Romans chapter 9, look at verse 27. Paul, in the New Testament, quotes Isaiah from 700 years previous. And Paul says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. This is a Jew talking about his own nation. Two Jews. Isaiah said it about his own nation. Now Paul is quoting Isaiah and applying it spiritually. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Oh, there's millions of them. Only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a remnant. A very sad commentary, and it literally becomes a theme throughout the New Testament. Would you make your way back to Matthew 8? Number four this morning, just like last week, and I, I apologize for having the same p title of the fourth point, but we need to look at lessons, right? We need to get some lessons from the centurion. What do we need to learn from this? I'm going to boil it down to two or three points, okay? And this springs out of verse 13. Look at verse 13. To the centurion, again, through these intermediaries, Jesus said, go let it be done for you, not as you've asked. That's not how Jesus said it. Everybody catch verse 13. It's important. Go, let it be done for you, as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Guys, I can stand confidently in saying all this big talk of the centurion, I believe if you just say the word, well, now we know he really did have the faith to back up his claim. You say, how do we know? Because the servant was healed. Jesus says, as you've believed. We're getting ready to find out. So here they go. Okay, he says, and off they go, and they make their way to the house, and lo and behold, they find a new scene. Would you use your mind for a moment? Here's what happens. Back home. They're out talking to Jesus, but back home, the centurion is servant. This servant goes from writhing in pain. Ow! Hang in there. Oh, I just, hang in there, man. I'm doing, I've got something. I've got a plan. I'm working on something. Oh, oh. All of a sudden, whoa. Whoa, what? Whoa. You, you feel something better? No. I feel totally better. And then finally, the guy, what, what, what just happened? And the centurion just smiles. He said it. Who said what happened? He said it. Who said it? I'll, I'll tell you. He says, thank you, guys. Well, no, we haven't even told you. Thank you for getting him to say it. What do you mean? And over here, the servant, looking like Gomer Pyle. Hey! Like, he said it. That's all we needed. Thank you. He said, that's the result. When Jesus says it, it happens. That's what happens. Why is this in the Bible? Oh, it's a nice story. Let's pray. No. 
We're supposed to learn something from this. I don't have time to develop this next point. I'm going to fly through it. Take, take it home, and I want you to think about it. This is in our Bible because we're supposed to learn from the example of the centurion and be like him. How? We should follow his example. I'm going to give you three, and the fourth one will be the biggest one. It's not in this current list. We need to be like the centurion, number one, because he really did care for people that were under his authority. He really did. He's a good man. Not everyone in here has people under them, but can I ask you, if you have anyone under you or a large number of people under you, do you care for them? He did. What if we really, like, cared and not just looked at them as, like, tools to help me accomplish my agenda? Number two, and this is a repeat from last week, so I'm going to invite you to do this on your own. Really go home and think about this. For time's sake, I'm not going to belabor it. How are we supposed to be like the centurion? He appealed to Jesus for help. Just keep it simple. Not everybody that was sick and paralyzed in the land ends up being healed, but this servant was. Why? Because his owner, his master, the centurion, actually went and asked Jesus for favors and mercy, and he has his request granted. We need to be like that. You say, I just need God to do something. I'm like, have you asked him? Yes, with faith, he did. The third way we obviously need to be like the centurion is that we need to be poor in spirit. I mean, this man is poor in spirit. His heart of hearts, despite what everybody else thinks of him and says he's a really good man worthy of this miracle, Lord, you really should do it for him. He's a good guy. His attitude is I'm not worthy. I'm not asking for what I deserve. I'm asking for what I don't deserve. Catch that. I'm asking, I'm asking, but I'm asking for what I don't deserve. Why is this in the Bible? I think it's in the Bible not just for us to be like this centurion, but we're supposed to learn some information. Wednesday nights, we've been calling it this. Are there any timeless, timeless truths in this text? Timeless, I've been saying on Wednesday nights, means this is true today. It was true a 1,000 years ago. It will be true in 500 years from now. Are there any? There are several. Can we boil it down to one or two? Write this down. Why is this in the Bible? This is in the Bible to show us that the power of Jesus is not bound by time. It is not bound by distance. The power of Christ, you say, Jeff, I already know that. That's because you have a huge advantage. We have a completed New Testament. For this man, this was extremely cutting-edge technology. Jesus' power is not bound by time. It's not bound by distance. He can, you mean he can be over there and affect? Absolutely. Bless his heart. I, I say a lot of good about William Barclay. But I'm gonna, I got to tell the truth. On, well, verse 13, he just dropped the ball. His, the way he dealt with verse 13, he started talking about ESP, extrasensory perception. Like, oh, you can affect and know things in another room. Like, what are you talking about? Jesus is God. It's his word. It's his will. It's not like he's in on something that other people walking around on the planet. Why am I getting off on women? I ain't got time. Anyway, there's a lot of good stuff. He blew it there. Number, next thing. What's another revelation? Same sentence. Write this down. Timeless truth. Jesus' words carry his full authority. Jesus' words enact, enact his full power. Just his words. That's one. This is, now, this gets to us. 
You say, Jeff, I've not really been able to relate. This sounds really foreign, very Roman, very 2,000 years ago. I get it. This relates to us. Here's the truth we need today. Jesus' words carry his full authority. Jesus' words enact his full power. Why is that important? Leave a marker here. Go to Hebrews. Now, you got your Bible. I want you to get ready. We're going to finish with a flurry of texts. You're going to want to see them. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm not going to read all. Again, this probably happened because I was reading Hebrews this week. That's the way it goes. Hebrews chapter 1. I know I'm going to be talking about the powerful word of Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm reading Hebrews 1 this week. Look at verse 3. So verse 1, you'll see the word God in the middle. Verse 2, you'll see his son in the middle. God's his son. Verse 3, we're talking about the son of God. Look at verse 3. Three or four facts about Jesus. He, the son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God. So there's like this radiant glory, and then there's a reflective glory. The text is not saying, the Bible is not saying that Jesus reflects over there's God, and God's glorious, and Jesus reflects really well the glory of God. No, Jesus himself, the Son of God, is the radiant glory. God is glorious, and if you want to see the glory of God, look at Jesus Christ. He radiates the glory of God. More theology. And he is the exact imprint of his nature so the god the father has a nature god has a nature jesus christ has the exact same nature jesus is god that's what the bible teaches then we look further at verse number three you want to know another piece of the and he upholds the universe he said what's holding everything together he's upholding the universe by the word of his power by the word listen to me You say, yes, God made the universe. He did. Jesus made the universe. The Bible is clear. Jesus made the universe by speaking it into existence. Literally, it wasn't there. He speaks. Jesus spoke. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus spoke. The universe came into existence. Let's hold it all together. You say, well, I think things, yes, God made everything, and he started all the little systems. There, that ought to last a few thousand years, spending a... It's not just out there running on its own. Do you know there are Christians who think things happen haphazardly? Just randomly. My Bible says Jesus knows the very hairs of our head. He's holding it all together by the word of his power. That's the key. The word of his power. So back to Matthew. Don't turn there. But So what you're saying is Jesus can heal somebody that's miles away. Yeah, and it isn't even hard. It's not like... Let me give it a shot. (laughs) All right. Give me some room. No. I'm holding this whole thing together anyway. You want me to say the word? Done. It'll be to you as you believe. And that same moment, here they come. Yeah, we understand. We know he said it. How do you know? Well, about 12 minutes ago. 12 minutes ago. Well, that's about the time. Yeah, it's about the time. Yeah, yeah, we know. Just get him to say it. So kind of, I'm going to finish with a flurry in a moment of of quick passages, but here's what I want us to get this morning for us. Be like the centurion. Understand the theology that the words of Jesus carry his full power, full authority. But now we need to bring those two things together. Watch. Be like the centurion in many ways, but here's what we need. We need to combine this power in the words of Christ with the theology and the faith of the centurion and put all of that together, and that's how we need to be like the centurion. 
Can I read between the lines? Here's what I think the centurion, in essence, is saying to Jesus back in the previous verses. Catch it. Listen. Here's what he's saying. I don't need to see you to believe in you. I don't need to see you to believe in your ability. I don't need to see you working to believe you're working. I thought of this the other day. It just popped in my mind again. Do y'all know preachers? There's several of us here this morning. Sometimes you think sometimes it goes better than others. I'm telling you, the biggest flop of a sermon that I think I've preached, that I thought I'd preached recently was last week. I got like six or seven comments, like three times the comments. But I'm like, Lord, come on, that, that was a horrible attempt at that. I even confess, I don't know that that was fully open to me. God's working when we don't see him. God's like, it ain't about you. I'm doing stuff. I'm doing it. This centurion's attitude, God, I don't need to see you working to know that you're working. Catch this. I don't need to see you working to experience the effects of your power. What if we were like that? What if we took that same? Here's here's the theology of the centurion. I just need your word. I can't see you. Can I have your word? You say, well, Jeff, he got a sentence or two from Jesus. We got like a whole Bible. I know. What if we took this and applied it to our life like he did with that promise from God? If you want to write this down. God's word. This is the point. Jeff, why are we even studying Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13? We better be getting this point. Here's the point. Jesus, God's word, is enough for us to know that what he promised will happen. That's enough. How do you know that that's really good? Because God said it. That's Abraham. That's the centurion. God's already said it. It's going to happen. What if we applied that? This is for Christians. This flurry of scriptures is for Christians. If you have your Bible, maybe you just want to watch the screen either way. What if we really, really believe Colossians chapter 2? You ready? Let's do this. Let's go. Colossians chapter 2. What if we really, I mean, this is for Christians. What if we honestly, really take these words of God and decide it, even when I don't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it, I know that because God said that, then that's what has happened, or that's what he's going to do. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse number 13. Hey, Christian, you say, well, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm trusting Jesus. All right, well, let's refresh. Let's be like the centurion. The Bible says, and you, you, you should be saying me, who were dead, dead is separation away from God, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the filth of our lives that's not been cut away, there we are living or dying in that, separated from God. Well, what happened? God made alive. Oh, what's alive? Together with. So alive is together. So let's read it all again. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, having, past tense, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I just canceled it out. How do you do that, God? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
long list of Jeff Bartlett's sins, the ones I haven't even committed yet. <laughs> There's all the evidence. It's a lot. Jesus dies on the cross. His blood. Wait, what happened to the thing? What Bartlett's stuff? Where did it? Gone. All gone. Christian, forgiven of all of our trespasses. He said, well, I just don't feel like it. I just feel beat down. I just feel extremely guilty all the time. Well, the Bible says, if you're a Christian, it's gone. Romans chapter 5. Would you flip over there very quickly? Not as long on this one. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Since we have been justified. Literally, God's already given his verdict. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge. God is our judge. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, like chapter 4 is talking about... Christian, then hear this fresh. Somebody here this morning's really been struggling with this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through, there's God, there's you, fighting your sin. God's against you. Insert Christ, takes all of our sin, gives us his righteousness, and now we have peace with God. If you're sitting here this morning, Christian, saying, I just, I feel like God's against me. You better get a new theology or get saved. You either need to get saved or get a new theology. You say, I am saved. Then you need to get this theology. You're at peace with God. Chapter number 8. Flip over there. There is therefore now no condemnation. Somebody this morning. And I've done this. This is me sometimes. I just feel so condemned. Chapter number 7. What's Paul talking about? He keeps going over and over. How as a saved man, I want to do the right thing. I find myself doing the wrong thing. I don't want to ever do the wrong thing. And I find myself doing the wrong thing. I want to do the right thing. And I find myself not doing the right thing. Who's going to deliver me from this body? This wretched body. Who's going to get me out of this? This constant struggle. Oh, Jesus Christ. Praise God. It'll be through Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not condemned. You say, I feel condemned. Not condemned. Can never be condemned by God. If God ever condemns me, then he lied and God can't lie. No condemnation for me, Christian. No condemnation for you. Hold your spot in Romans. We're going to come right back in just a moment. Coming back to chapter 8. Look at 1 John. 1 John. Got to go fast. Look at chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Christians, here's our point that we're trying to make. Is God's word is enough to know that what he's promised is what he's promised will happen what he's promised has happened john writes to christians see what kind of love the father has given to us well how much does he love us that we should be called children of god okay we're called children of god no 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 and so we are the reason you say well i don't look like it i don't feel like it i don't sometimes i don't feel any more special the reason why the world and sometimes we ourselves don't even know Us, why? It did not know him. Literally God in the flesh. The one and only son of God was walking around the planet. People couldn't recognize him. Here we are, the adopted sons of God. John says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we, listen Christians, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We are God's children now I don't look like it. I still, I know we're God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, oh, he's coming back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I told you to hold your spot back in 
Romans 8. Because here's why that's important. Okay, Jeff, so we are the children of God, right? I've got to remember that. Sometimes I don't feel like it, but I've got to remember that absolutely it is true. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 16. Here's why that matters. God's word is enough. Verse 16, the Spirit, Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, that we are children of God. Now, hold on. What's the ramification? I don't have anything. Life's hard. Life's a struggle. And if God really loved me, then how come he doesn't? Hang on. And if children, and if there isn't like maybe it's since we're children, Christians, listen, listen, then heirs. We're God's children now. And it's going to be more evident one day when we get a glorified body and when we get to see heaven as it is. And because we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified him. Heirs of God. Do y'all understand if we ever had about a one one thousandth of what that means? We'd be like some church services I saw in Bible college, man. We'd be running all over this building in joy and excitement. We'd lose our minds if we had one one thousandth of an idea of what that phrase. Wait, wait. Heirs of God. Like, like, heir means you get in on everything that's on. Yeah. Well, what does God own? Everything. What do you own? You own everything. You own everything. It's going to be apparent one day. Ephesians 2. I told you it would be a flurry. Here's one more for Christians. One more for Christians. Ephesians 2 verse 18. For through, we got some pronouns. Him. For through Him. That's Jesus. You go back and look at it yourself. Through Jesus Christ. Through Him. We we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, who believe in Jesus. There is a remnant of Jews who believe. And there are some Gentiles around the world who believe. The Bible says, for through him, Christ, we, Jews and Gentiles, both have access in one spirit. Oh, the Trinity is all here. There's the Son. Here comes the Spirit in one spirit to the Father. We have access. You say, Jeff, I've been trying to pray and I just don't feel like God is there. I don't feel God seems a million miles away. He's not. He's not, Christian, you need to tell yourself, I'm going to be like that centurion. And when I don't feel like God is present, and I don't have like, like known sin I need to confess, it just seems like God is distant. God, I'm going to go ahead and talk to you because I know you hear everything. You are here. Your word says I have access by one spirit through Christ along with my brothers and sisters around the world. I'm going to go ahead and talk to you like you really are here and you really are. Now, whoa, I sense you all of a sudden. That's what usually happens. When you'll launch out by faith, then all of a sudden the Lord's like, yeah, I love faith. Now I'm going to let you feel my presence. It starts with faith. Last one. All of those. Let me give it again. You've been forgiven of all sin. You've been justified and have peace. Christian, there's no condemnation. Can never be condemned. You've been adopted into the family of God, which means you're an heir, which means right now and in the future, you have direct access to God. All of that is in, in place, but it's all built on another initial faith. What is it? Well, John chapter 3, verse 16. Would you look at the screen? John 3. And we're going to leave that up for the rest of these last moments. Would you look? You say, Jeff, I want all those things that was in there that the Bible said for those people. Here's, here's the first faith before you can believe all of those. You have to believe this. God said, and remember, God's word is enough. Just his word is enough to be sure it's going to happen. 
There may be a lost person, one who's never yet put their faith in Jesus. You've never become a Christian. You're sitting here right now. If you, I'm telling you one verse. You don't even have to have full theology on this thing. I'm telling you, if you believe this verse, like the centurion believed, if he could get Jesus to say about his servant, then here's what you would have. Now, by the way, I'll go ahead and tell you. It will be to you as you have believed. It's going to be to you as you have believed. He said, I don't know how to believe all those other verses. Well, then you're not going to heaven. He said, I don't know that I believe this. Then you're not going to heaven. But if you, we're going to find out who believes. Just like the servant got healed and we know that the centurion had real faith. We're going to find out when we get to heaven. Am I going to look around? Am I going to see all of you? You're going to see me. I'm there. I believe. I'm not a good person. But I'm going because I've believed. For God so loved the world. This is God's word. You say, well, this, it, it, some of these passages you read, it isn't directly God talking. Okay, if God talks to a prophet or an apostle who writes it down, it is still God, even if he's using this person as an intermediary, to talk to us. This stands on its own. God so loved the world that he gave, he gave to die on a cross. He gave his only son, the one and only son of God by nature. Why? That whoever... I've done really bad things. You don't understand. I'm probably the worst person in this building. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All these verses are built on two things. In your heart, not only do you have to hear it, but you have to believe this. God is truthful, and God is all-powerful. God is truthful. God is all-powerful. So whenever he says something, that's enough. It has to be. So God, if you said whoever will believe, then I want in on that. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Just for a moment. I'm literally not leading in a prayer this morning. I'm not leading in a prayer. I just want to say this. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have, have eternal life. There may be one person here this morning, maybe 10. Can I just tell you guys something? You have God by his word if you'll take him up on it. You have God by his word. If you'll hear that and say in your heart, now God, start talking to God. God, you said whoever believes in your son will not perish. I have eternal life. I don't want to perish. I want eternal life. All right, then put your faith. You have God by the promise. You have what the centurion had. You have a greater promise than the centurion. Your eternal life is at stake. I'll tell you this morning, the difference between heaven and hell is faith on your end. It is grace on God's end. It is faith on your end. You've got God. you got all you needed. He's already said, if you'll believe in my son, you'll not perish. If you've never done that, why don't you do it right now? You don't need me to tell you what to say to God just talk to him confess your sins acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord and then say God I'm going to at this moment I am taking you up on this just before we sing Christian say man I want to see God do something have you asked have you asked that's a theme lately. Have you asked? And then, Christian, is there an area of your life that you have forgotten that God has spoken 
something, a fact about you, but it doesn't feel like it right now. It doesn't seem like it. The evidence doesn't look like it. Well, listen, faith is the evidence. Christian, faith is the evidence. You say, I don't see a lot of evidence. I don't see a lot of proof that what God said. The Word of God is the evidence. It's what you have. It's going to happen. God can't lie. I don't feel like a child of God. I feel condemned. Well, stop. If you've truly trusted Christ, you're not condemned. You are a child of God. You are an heir of God. You do have access to God. You may need to use that access to confess some sin that is corrupting and contaminating and choking your fellowship, but you have access to God through Christ by one spirit. Father, thank you for this centurion. Lord, may we learn to be like him, his compassion, his humility. But Lord, I pray that our church will especially be like him in our great faith. Help us to know the promises that you've made and help us just to live like you're telling the truth. Father, if there's one or several who are not sure of their salvation, Lord, move them in. If they need to talk with us, Lord, let them talk with us before they leave today.